We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Vision podcast, World Cup Daily, discussing another day of World Cup drama, two World Cup quarterfinals happening on this day. Um, And we'll talk about those momentarily with our usual guests, uh, Lewis. Hello, Lewis. Hello. Good evening, Tim. And Phil Costa. Hey, Tim. How's it going? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Not too bad. So obviously we've had Morocco versus Portugal and we're recording this just after England versus France. So forgive any crying or sobbing that you hear um, across the track. But before we go into those games, and we'll go into them chronologically, um, we just wanted to say at the top of the podcast, uh, on behalf of everyone um, from the Arsenal Vision uh, podcast, just to kind of acknowledge um, and not just acknowledge, but commiserate the news about um, the American journalist Grant Wall, um, who sadly passed away at the Argentina-Netherlands game um, on Friday evening. And Grant uh, has been a, ha- has actually been a guest on this podcast, someone that Elliot knows uh, from college, actually, I believe. Um, but I mean, even leaving that aside, just an absolute titan um, of football journalism, particularly for those of you stateside who are listening to this. Um, I think there's probably an excellent chance that if you're American and you're listening to this, that Grant Wall is a big part of the reason that you are listening to this in the first place. And as someone who covers women's football as well, it's very, very difficult for me. I've been thinking about this today to think of any journalist that has been more influential um, when it comes to particularly coverage of of women's football, women's soccer. Um, and yeah, just, just one of the best to do it, uh, Grant. One of those people who's absolutely fearless, spoke truth to power right to the end, um, and we're just we're all desperately sad um, to hear that news, and just really want to kind of acknowledge and commiserate that. And Grant, someone who's uh, you know for me um, a very big influence as well, um, and that you know he'll continue to be. Um, so we just we just wanted to put that at the top of the show. Um, but anyway, let's talk first about Morocco Portugal. First of all, just to put some distance from the England result by 10 or 15 minutes, but also because it happened first. And obviously Morocco beating Portugal 1-0, becoming the first African nation to get to a World Cup semi-final. And I think what's really appealing to me about this story, story about this is that effectively Morocco feels like the home nation um, now, I think, and I think they have done for a while. And Lewis, if I come to you first, I mean, Morocco, they've played Croatia, they've played Spain, they've played Portugal. They haven't conceded a goal in any of those games, but I don't think it's fair. I know I've seen a lot of people say maybe they'll do a Greece 2004, but I I still don't entirely get that vibe from them as much as I think they're defensively solid. Um, before we go into the nuts and bolts of this game, just why do you think that Morocco have been so successful in this tournament? 
I think you've just nailed it. Defensively solid, uh, you know, in a nutshell. Um, they've the, the coach is is brand new. Basically, he only arrived a, a couple of months ago. Uh, but defensively, the system that he's put in place is brilliant. They're brilliant, but without being, I don't think negative. You know, uh, it's it, they're the first team actually at sort of the top level that I've seen for ages that I think play defensive football but without just collapsing into their own box and then hoping they can head everything away they'll try and keep you away from anywhere dangerous they'll keep you sort of you know the defensive line you see Portugal have the ball today Spain were the same on sort of halfway and the Morocco back line is 20 yards ahead of their box so basically you're playing in one fifth or one quarter of the entire pitch. You've got all 22 players more or less squeezed into that space. And from there, there's just, they, they, they close every gap, you know, whenever anyone moves out to presses, we spoke the other day, or we've spoken a few times over the course of the tournament about the way that Sofian Amrabat's been playing the, the defensive midfielder in the sort of four, one, four, one. And, you know, every formation, every shape has its weaknesses but this Morocco, they seem to understand each other so well and where they need to be to close those gaps at any moment. So, you know, the the striker's never really alone in pressuring that front line. You, one of the central midfielders will push up, be it left or right, and join him when needed. Amrabat then shuffles into either the left or right role in midfield and, and you get sort of, you know, this 4-4-2 and when that's not needed, when there's no pressure on the ball, when the ball's been ushered to one side, then it's sort of the clear 4-1-4-1 with the midfield and defence, hardly any space between them at all. And then Amrabat there sweeping, basically, in front of the back four. It, defensively, you know, they've not just kept clean sheets against the teams you mentioned, Croatia, Belgium, uh, Spain and Portugal now. But they've really they've deserved those clean sheets. I don't think those teams have really caused them much trouble at all. They've had they've all dominated possession, but there haven't been you know clear cut chances that have gone missing. The uh, the goalkeeper Bono has made good saves, but he's not had some sort of defining performance like maybe um, Livakovic against Brazil uh, in in Friday's quarter final where he made ten saves. I mean, you know obviously some harder than others. I don't think Morocco have been relying on outstanding goalkeeping or bad finishing for this run through the tournament. And then you get the other side of the game where when they get the ball, they can actually hurt you as well. And, and again, we've talked about Sofian Buffal and, and Hakim Ziyech, two wide players who in isolation can always beat their man and, and find someone at the back post to get a shot away. Ashraf Hakimi and, and usually Masraoui at left back, uh, two flying wing backs today. Um, obviously, uh, Masraoui's injured and, and Atia Allah came in. And I thought for the first half hour, he was probably Morocco's, Morocco's most dangerous player getting forward down the left. And I thought the two central midfielders today ahead of Amrabat were really dangerous on the break as well. So you know, this was a this is a real a really really solid team. It's hard to see any weaknesses. I mean, we, you know, we'll get onto the semi-finals later. Uh, I do worry a little bit about the impact of playing this sort of football too much and just mm. how exhausting it is. I think three of their back four are injured now. If, if Roman Saez is seriously hurt, he had to come off today. Uh, West Ham's uh, Aguar didn't play today because he got injured in the in the last round. And as I said, Majoral is out. So going forward, I worry a little bit about quality, individual quality. If they're missing three of that back four. But they're, they're, for me, they're the most obviously well-drilled and organised team in the whole competition, and they, they definitely deserve to be where they are. Yeah, definitely. And for me, a massive revelation, actually, when uh, Roman Sess came off, and I was like, wow, there's a former Wolves player in this game, and he's not playing for Portugal. That's incredible. Um, just segueing into into Portugal, Phil, um, they, they, they went unchanged, which I don't think was a huge surprise. And obviously, like all the talk is about Ramos playing ahead of Ronaldo. I think one of the really interesting things about this tournament so far is that no one seems to be able to put two good games together. Like every time you're like, you look in the round of 16, who are the teams who really destroyed teams, Portugal and Brazil? They've both gone home now in the last 24 hours. And, and you know, obviously, if you're Portugal, you have to pick Ramos again, you know, because he scores a hat trick. But I, I forgot he was on the pitch uh, at times today. What, what did you make of, um, 
I guess Portugal's performance, but you know, do you think that they were they were a little bit unlucky here, or or do you think that Morocco really kept them at arm's length? I think it was kind of similar to the Spain game, to be honest. In that Morocco were demanding different things, they were asking questions, and Portugal just couldn't find the answers. I mean, they started brightly. Um, I thought they were pressing really well, actually. They were boxing Morocco into the corners and they couldn't get out. But then they started to find their references, which was, you know, Hakimi and Ziyech on the right. It was Amrabat through the middle. And then the game began to be a little bit more open. You could see Morocco coming into the game. And I know we're talking about Portugal here, but Azadino Nahi for Morocco was was incredible today. I mean, he was tasked with a with a very specific role He's kind of their pressure valve, the release. And he was so careful and smart on the ball in that first half. It was like it was glued to his foot. And it's even more interesting when you consider he plays more as an advanced eight or a number 10 for Angers at club level. And now he's playing very deep next to Amrabat. And I think he's he's been incredible um, just next to I, Amrabat. I was actually, um, I, I have in my notes to ask about him because like it feels like in this day and age, you don't get as many kind of, oh, he had a good international tournament, we're going to sign him, uh, kind of like Senegal 2002 kind of thing. And mm-hmm. and like I don't want to kind of just go into, oh, we all, we're all from England, well, we're all from England and like watch the Premier League. So which Premier League team is going to sign? But like he really feels like someone who could be a bit of a breakout player in this tournament who perhaps not many people knew about. Yeah, I mean, he's 22 um, and Onje are really struggling in Liga in this season, but he's he he's second in completed dribbles in the top five European leagues this season. And number one is Lionel Messi. So, you know, it's, never not, heard a, of him. it's not a bad... Yeah, never heard of him, bit average. Um, he's fallen off, I think. Um, but yeah, I just thought he was really impressive because I did think in the early stages they were struggling with the Portugal press. But as the game was was beginning to open up, I thought Ruben Neves was being exposed a lot. Um, and you could see it because Portugal went with Otavio again. They had Bernardo Silva, Joao Felix, Bruno Fernandes. And individually, they all kind of work hard. But I don't know um, if that was... Maybe they were expecting to have more of the ball um, because Morocco obviously were sitting back a little bit. But I didn't think, as Lewis said, they were like camped in on the edge of their box and, and treating it like a hot potato. So... Funnily enough, I did think that this game maybe would have suited Ronaldo a little bit more just Mm. um, in terms of the three behind Ramos because Ramos likes to be running in behind a bit. He likes to feel the contact from the defenders and I think Morocco are comfortable there. I think maybe Ronaldo and his knowledge of the box, his one-touch finishing maybe would have been a bit more useful, but it turns out that when he came on, the script was written and he didn't do anything. So... That was he me cried. Being proven. He <laughs> cried. Um, expected tears were were very high, um, but I just thought, yeah, I, they, I don't think they played badly. But I didn't, I didn't see them streaking forward at every opportunity like they did against Switzerland. I mean, we spoke about. It. I think Lewis, you made the point. They were dominant against Switzerland, but I think that was a very. It was a bit of an anomaly because A, Switzerland structurally were horrible and they basically gave Portugal that game and there was a lot of finishing in that game that maybe wasn't sustainable. A couple of screamers, you know, from Leal, from, I, I, like, I think, from Ramos. I, I think we said, right, like just the just to go 2 0 up, it was the the near post finish that the Ramos hits on the turn, which just is past Jan Zoman before he can react to it, um, mm-hmm. which is just a belter. Which, you should bolt out of the blue and then the second one's a set piece and then it's game over uh switzerland were awful and then they were awful and two nil down um yeah. but but two nil down really from scenarios they couldn't do much differently and it, the sort of thing that you just can't you can't rely on to get goals that way over and over again you know someone finds the top corner on the turn from the edge of the box and a set piece uh, today obviously like yeah the bounces just didn't go portugal's way the same way that they did the other night. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, they've been kind of stodgy going forward. And the Switzerland game feels a lot more like an, uh, an anomaly than than the rule. But, you know, I, I don't think they did anything specifically wrong. I just felt that they couldn't find the extra gear against, you know, let's be honest, an excellent defence. I mean, Lewis, you were speaking about the clean sheets that they've had against Belgium, Spain and Portugal now. The only 
uh, team that's been able to score against Morocco is Morocco. You know, <laughs> they've conceded one goal and it was an own goal. So it's it's incredible what they're doing, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think um I, I think also there's something let, let's talk a little bit about the context because obviously they've they've made history. They're the first African nation to make a World Cup semi-final. I, I read I remember reading, I think it was when Cameroon beat Brazil. That was the sixth victory for an African nation at the World Cup. I've lost count of where we are now, but that broke a record. The previous record was for five. Um, African nation wins at a World Cup, and now we're like, I mean, Morocco could double it <laughs> basically if they if they go on and win it. And I have to be honest, I I don't think they will. I think they've got a chance, though. I I, I definitely personally wouldn't rule them out. But um, Lewis, in terms of like, I mean, for me, it feels like, and it has felt like for a while, like they're the home nation now, more mm. or less, and they have that behind them. But why? Um, why do you think in general the African nations have, have fared so much better in this World Cup? Do you think it's just a sign of like their overall progression? And maybe for as much as we criticize the expansion of the World Cup, maybe that's that's been a bit of a, a bit of a benefit, maybe something to do with playing in the climate. I don't know. What what are your impressions on Morocco and what that means for for African football or whether this is just like it's an international tournament and shit happens? <laughs> I, I well, I think firstly to to go to your point on the home advantage, this is something that we've seen consistently. I think from for the African teams and the the te- the sort of teams from the Arabian nations, if you like, Saudi Arabia included, uh, Iran. That the support's been huge, but not the, Qatar. The weirdly fans. enough, no, no. Well, there's only is it, oh, three million people in Qatar, and the vast vast majority aren't Qatari. Yeah, uh, so. <laughs> there's problem solved i think um you know, we, we could we could talk all day about you know qatar's legitimacy as a as a footballing nation if you like mm. uh, you know obviously you know they've never qualified is it a football mad country mm, who who's to say but not really well it's certainly not the impression that comes across uh, whereas morocco i think morocco have had more bids to host the world cup rejected than any other nation and this is it's clearly, you know, you see the pictures from, I uh, know, uh, back home, but uh, here in Germany today, they, they had sort of the pictures from this enormous square in Marrakesh where it looked like there were millions of people watching uh, a live uh, live viewing, just going absolutely insane, as you can imagine. This has looked like a home World Cup, you know, for all of the African teams, I think, uh, when they've played their games, as I say, for Saudi Arabia, for Iran as well. And that's got to do something. It's got to mean something. And you've you've seen it sort of from the group stage throughout the tournament that, that that's been the case. And going beyond that, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> honestly said, I don't know. I think there's an element of, you, you mentioned those Senegal players. And I think we see, you know, in 2002, and obviously they went through to, to the quarterfinals and ended up all being picked off by clubs around Europe. I think football's just global. It is a global game now. The best Senegalese players, the best Moroccan players, the vast majority are discovered. There's one player, I think, in the Morocco team today who plays in Morocco. Uh, mm. there's, there's an enormous number of players, especially from the African nations, who weren't born, uh, you know, they're the sort of second generation. Um, I think it's 14 immigrants. out of the 26 not not actually born in Morocco. Right, which is huge, huge numbers. But, you know, we've got you know, Ashraf Hakimi born in Spain, the vast majority in France, uh, Hakim Ziyech in, in the Netherlands. And I think there's that education there is coming now in, in the European academies. They're not at a disadvantage, if you like, when it comes to elite coaching or playing against the very best from a young age. They're doing it. They're doing it. They're not that Sadio Mane journey, uh, you know, trekking across Senegal to find a chance of making it in professional football. It doesn't exist so much anymore. These players are coming through top academies with top coaching and facilities from young ages. Even the ones, you know, who maybe weren't born in France or in the Netherlands, they're being found earlier and then taken into European football. And then we talk about the coaching and I think the coaching in, in Morocco I think the coaching everywhere pretty much looks the same. 
you know, there was that, that uh, athletic article from uh, Juan Malilo this week talking about watching a game in Cameroon or in Brazil or in Manchester, and they all pretty much look exactly the same tactically. That education is obviously coming globally now. Every team prepares the same way. The disadvantages or the advantages that European teams and the richer South American teams maybe had 20, 30 years ago in terms of sports science and opposition analysis, those those margins still exist, but not to anywhere near the same extent, I would wager. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's been a really fascinating um, kind of subtext of this World Cup. And and Phil, before we kind of close on this game, uh, it'd be remiss not to look at, you know, two of the biggest, I guess, two of the biggest incidents, one of which is the winning goal from El Nesri. And I think anyone that out jumps the goalkeeper, <laughs> when the goalkeeper's got both his arms in the air and has that massive advantage and you still get higher than the goalkeeper, that's that's a hell of a header. Um, and then, of course, there's the Chidera red card in stoppage time. But but first of all, um, I guess, because the first half was different, from I, I think there was a game at 0-0 and there was a game at 1-0. So let's take the game at, at, at 0-0 when Morocco kind of break Portugal down with that header and and, and I guess just that goal and, and everything that built up to it and all of the danger that El Nesri posed up front. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they were really opening them up on, on the break. I mean, there were three or four occasions where it was a poor final ball or the wrong decision being made and you just think, man, you really have to take one of these if you're going to win the game. And, and for the goal itself, I mean, the cross isn't great. It's very high. It's kind of looping down. And that's usually a goalkeeper's dream. They just come and claim those. Um, but Ruben Diaz is really caught under the ball there. And, and Diogo Costa is just in no man's land. I think he gets seduced by the the flight of the ball. Um, and they both don't look great. But the leap, the leap from in the series, there's a picture. And it's, you know, he's high enough for Ruben Diaz to, for Ruben Diaz to still be in the air and he's still below his back. Like, it's unbelievable. It's it's just incredible. And I think he's had a really tough time in La Liga this season. I don't think he scored, actually. But he's a really underrated player. And I think that was kind of a moment he needed because often it was Sofian Bufal, it was Ziyech, it was Hakimi. But I think he needed that moment today, um, even if the... You know, even if the defending wasn't great from from Diaz and the goalkeeping not so, not so great from, from Costa. But... And what did you think about the red card? I mean, for me, that is soft as hell. I mean, Joao Felix makes the decision for the referee. I mean, he had a disaster class of a cameo, make no mistake. Um, But come on, that's not a red card. Just use a bit of common sense, like, please, referee. Um, I think the fact that it's a a second yellow as well means that VAR can't get involved and... It, it was a second yellow, wasn't it? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, not, yeah, 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 yeah. He, he got the card out so quick that I wondered if he'd forgotten he'd already booked he'd him. He'd booked him, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, I, I, I one, definitely think that. The first one was really soft as well, just like a, a bit of a nudge on, on Pepe challenging for a ball in the air, which Pepe, shock, made a meal of. Uh, I, I, yeah, two yellow cards for that, I don't know. Let's let, let's go a little bit schadenfreude then. I mean, first of all, I just want to... I don't necessarily want to have a big discussion about this, but um, Pepe missing that header in the 97th minute and the Moroccan defender, forgive me, I can't remember which one, (laughs) kissing his head afterwards. Just (laughs) for me, one of the images of the World Cup. It reminded me of cool runnings when you have to kiss the lucky egg, you know, like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's like, that's really rubbing it in. Like that for me is up there with Argentina uh, and their reaction to the Netherlands at the end of the penalty shootout. But Phil, to to close on this game do you think and maybe hope that this is the last we've seen of of Ronaldo um, and Portugal oh it has to be it has to be I mean they tried their best to to keep him and you know as little as involved as as humanely possible this tournament I mean the first opportunity Fernando Santos had he took it with both hands and you know there was talk of spats behind the scenes he was visibly upset during the the substitution in the final group game he's just he's just done man like you've had 20 years at the top of football enjoy your time 
it's okay to not be as good as you were when you were 25. It's fine, you know, but it's unfortunately his ego is just too big uh, to be able to take a step back really. And I did find the the post-match tears very amusing because while his teammates were all on the pitch, um, who's first down the tunnel with the cameras out, the 4K cameras out, you know, it's Ronaldo. Um, and he hasn't scored a goal in a World Cup knockout stage ever. That's five now he's played at and not a single goal in a knockout stage. Um, so yeah, not great for him. And it's probably one trophy, one accolade that's going to that's gonna leave a burning hole on that, well, admittedly brilliant resume. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine that Croatia will not have a bigger supporter in the semi-final than Cristiano Ronaldo. But um, we'll, we'll come back to Morocco in a bit when we talk um, about their semi-final against France, because obviously France... Boohoo, cry, 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 beat England um, tonight. And Lewis, if I start with you, I mean, first of all, um, I mean, both teams unchanged. I, I don't think, I certainly in France's um, respect, I think France is France is France. Um, that That's the team they're going to play. And they've got injuries as well, which take what takes away a little bit of their already pretty amazing depth. But England went unchanged as well. I mean, I guess, were you surprised by that at all? Um, and how did you, let, let's take like the first half of this game. How did you, what did you make of the first half in particular? I'd, I would have been more surprised if England had changed something, if we, if we can put it that way. Uh, I didn't see an obvious change that may, was likely to be made, if you like, from, from the 11. So, you know, maybe Henderson playing over Mount is the question that people might have or one of the wide players, but Foden and Saka can't argue with that. Henderson's the more safe defensive option and and playing on the right-hand side where Mbappe obviously plays as well. So I I don't think there were any surprises there. I thought the first half, I mean, I I think that again, this was a game that changed for me a little bit, even though it wasn't so long before it was 1-0. It was a game that changed a bit at 1-0. England obviously had the, the all of the build up. So much of the build up was about Mbappe, and I, I don't, I can hardly remember a game except maybe the big ones when Lionel Messi was at his absolute peak, uh, where everybody just talked about how to stop one player and mm. made it into a one v one, a Kyle Walker versus Kylian Mbappe thing. Sometimes, you know, there was a part of me thinking going into this game, are, are we now going to see, I don't know, Usman Dembele just roast Luke Shaw over and over again while everyone's been talking about Mbappe and, and Walker? No, we actually ended up getting that Mbappe-Walker game, I think, for the majority of the first half, up to 45 minutes. Kyle Walker got ahead of Kylian Mbappe once and France scored. Uh, I don't think it's an accident. Uh, I, I thought the plan to basically, you know, we've all seen it at Arsenal with Ben White or, or Tommy Asu at times, that the right-back tucks in and he's a third centre-back. Uh, Kyle Walker's done it for Manchester City for years. His recovery pace, he's done it for England for years. His recovery pace makes him one of the best players in the world for that very specific role and probably arguably the best suited right back in the entire world to take on Kylian Mbappe as well or you know, try and shut him down. I thought it was the right plan from, from Gareth Southgate, from England's perspective. And Kyle Walker went forward once. Bakaya Saka uh, was was tripped but didn't get a foul. Um, sure we'll We've seen that before. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen it before. We saw it again many, many times tonight. Uh, yeah, and you know, Walker got back in time and England had three players around Mbappe by the time he got into the England half, but it was too late. You know, the two of the three players were Henderson and Rice, and he jinked inside. That all of the space was in the middle, and he, he used it. You know, if Walker's there, then Henderson and Rice are inside, and they. I think Walker's so good one on one that England trusted him one on one to deal with the threat of Kylian Mbappe. The one time he was caught out ahead of the ball, and I actually think when Saka loses the ball and England don't get the foul, I think he's. If you look at the replays, England's furthest player forward because he's overlapped. And Harry Kane's in the middle and Walker is the furthest player from the England goal. Um, you know, it, it drags Henderson and Rice out. Henderson gets, he's not even a factor because Mbappe goes inside. Uh, Rice tries to stay with him and, and he rides the challenge really, really well. He plays outside and suddenly because the ball's out wide and because Henderson and Rice have, have chased back, because Walker's chased back by then as well, 
every single England player has collapsed into the box because the ball's gone out to Dembele and they're worried about it coming back in for Giroud or for Mbappe to attack. And all the space is on the edge of the box for, for Chalmany, who takes his goal incredibly. Like, you know, even still, 95% of the time, England don't concede a goal from that because the guy doesn't find the bottom corner. I, I think maybe there's a question about Jordan Pickford and, and whether he could have got down quicker, but it's perfectly struck. Um, and then, yeah, I, I thought France had been the better side up to that point. And then I thought going into this game, you wondered that probably the flaw, if you would, if you look at it that way for both of these sides, is that they don't kill games. Both mm. managers are quite happy to be 1-0 up. And that's fine in a lot of international fixtures when you've got Mbappe on one side or when you've got Bellingham and Saka and Foden and Kane on the other side. Most teams, and we saw it in the last round, Senegal and Poland, will at some point commit too much and then you just pick them off on the break. You can't afford to do that when you've got two sort of Champions League level teams playing against each other. If you've got them 1-0 down, pin them back and don't collapse into your own half and try and protect your box because you're just inviting pressure from some of the best players in the world. And I thought after that, England were probably the better side until it went one all, and then it started to sway again the other way because neither side wanted to risk quite enough at any point. Yeah, and, and again, I, I think that's been like another like slightly interesting theme of the tournament. Like, but like Brazil yesterday, like I, I've watched pretty much all of their games under Chite. And if you'd have told me at any point that they'd lose a goal in the 115th minute when they're 1-0 up because they have six players ahead of the ball, I'd have told you you're mad. Because like Chite and Brazil are very much in that Deschamps Southgate. Like, right, we're 1-0 up. Let's call it off and just leave it to Neymar kind of thing. And um, and yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I had the real sense of that from this game. But Phil, in terms of, again, just coming back, I guess, to England's starting lineup, because there was some, again, this I think this has been a theme of the tournament. So usually when Brazil play big teams, they drop out one of those number 10s and put Fredge in. And, you know, France sometimes go a little bit more conservative in these big games. And in these big games, sometimes we see England go to a back three. And there was a lot of speculation about whether they'd go to a back three specifically to kind of um, try and deal with Mbappe, who was really a bit of a non-factor in this game. I mean, do you think England should have done that? Were you surprised they didn't do that? Or do you think kind of just continuing as they were was the way and and not obsessing, mate? Having a plan for Mbappe but not obsessing over him was the way to go. Yeah, I think the latter. I mean, ultimately, on paper, it didn't look like a back three, but in possession it was, really, as Lewis mentioned. I think Luke Shaw was playing very advanced and, and Carl Walker was tucking in, so... Look, we kind of had a little bit of both, but for me, the from the first half anyway, the major frustration was how the the two eights were being deployed. I just, it, it was the same against Senegal. The first thirty minutes, thirty five minutes against Senegal, Henderson and Bellingham are supposed to be playing as as kind of supportive players to the wide men, but they were playing on the touchline. The amount of times that Henderson kept running into Saka's space, and I was like, leave him alone. You're supposed to be like you know, dropping back a bit to support if he needs it, but he just kept going over to him. And naturally that brings another man. So Saka was having to, to, to go off, you know, around not just Teo Hernandez and Rabio, but then Mbappe was coming back. It was, you know, Chuameni was even drifting over and there was just too many people in the wide areas. And that was exactly the same mistake that we were doing against Senegal. And what happens in the second half, they get it right. And England start to dominate the game. Henderson, Bellingham, they're actually factors in the middle of the pitch. Who would have thought it instead of, you know, leaving Declan Rice there with 50 yards of nothing? Um, you know, it was just too easy for France to, to keep us out wide. You know, Foden was, did he even touch the ball in the first half? I mean, you know, Bellingham was too far over and it was just cancelling out both of their abilities, which is, you know, Foden's at his best drifting inside, Saka's at his best drifting inside. And they completely... It was, it, you know, it was self, self-damage. self What's the word I'm, I'm, I'm looking for? There's, there's a word there I'm looking for, but, you know, it was a mess of England's making and they finally sorted it out. And, you know, Saka, I mean, we'll speak about some of the refereeing decisions, but, <laughs> you know, who's the one that's getting the penalty? It's Saka driving in field. And where is Bellingham? He's supporting 
in that half space, not on the touchline, you know? And it was just like a, a little light bulb went off, you know? They got it these right. These guys are good. Um, <laughs> these guys are good. Do, set them do, to do proper things and proper roles. Don't put them on the touchline. Um, but yeah, it was it was just a shame because I think England had really kind of grasped the game at that point. I thought, to be fair... Declan Rice was kind of excellent as that that screen in front of the in front of the defense. Every loose ball, if he needed to win it in the air, he won it. So I think that was really helpful for England and how they recycled it. Um, and they were really pushing France back, who admittedly were a bit crap defensively. I mean, Upamecano had an Upamecano game. I mean, Lewis will be able to tell you as a, a Bundesliga watcher, but he's very. He likes to play at either end of the scale for me or Papacano. He's never a seven out of 10. He's either a 10 or a one. And there were a few challenges today. I was looking at him saying, what are you doing, mate? And Teo Hernandez, you know, everyone knows he's not a defender. He's very much an attacking fullback. And I thought that side was England's way in every single time. And for about 15, 20 minutes of that, of that second half, Saka was running the game. Yeah, there are a lot of things in this game, you know, watching it as an Arsenal fan. You know, the the Chimeni goal that you described, Lewis, Thomas Partey has scored like, no, yeah, not that yeah. finish, but it was it was very much that kind of, you know, the forwards all pushing everyone back into the area and, and having that kind of pullback there. Saka just not getting fouls ever for some reason, other than the actual penalty. Kane going down in the box and not getting a penalty, not used to seeing that. And uh, look, we're all friends. We're all Arsenal fans here. If you're listening to this, you're an Arsenal fan, whether you're English or not. The amount of times collectively we have willed Harry Kane to balloon penalties. And, you know, I appreciate a lot of you listening won't necessarily be English, but like he chooses tonight to actually do that. Like, for fuck's sake, man. Anyway, let's put that to one side. But <laughs> just but, Tim, quickly on that though, do you what do you what's your take on a player taking two penalties in one game? Because I always think that must be awful psychologically. I mean, you've got the added element, obviously, of the goalkeeper's club, club teammate as well. But I think you, I always think a retaken penalty or two penalties in the same game, the, there's already such a psychological heft to a penalty. To take a second one, do you go the same way? Do you not go the same way? Do you wait for the keeper to... Uh, like, that That sounds like an absolute nightmare for me. I, I would be all in favour, you know, if it was Arsenal or... Well, I would be all in favour of, actually, if you get a second penalty in a game, somebody else takes it, no matter how the first one went. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess, looking at that England team, was Rash- Rashford was on the pitch at that point, wasn't he? Yeah, he came um, on when Saka came off, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and we'll talk about that in a minute as well, by the way. <laughs> I mean I mean, generally speaking, as much as it pains me to say, and look, we've all seen it at close quarters, like Kane is just one of the best penalty takers out there. He really is. Um I, the thing I really enjoyed though was the first penalty. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Hernandez, like runs up to Larice and it was says Mbappe. something to him. Mbappe, it yeah. Was Mbappe, like, Larice yeah. is like, Cheers for the advice, mate. <laughs> I see this guy take a lot of penalties. Uh, um, actually, and he takes them against me in training every day. So I probably don't need your fucking advice, mate, quite <laughs> frankly. But but yeah, I mean, like, it's it's difficult, like, with one penalty to, you know, is it just one of those things that happens? I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there probably is something about it being the second penalty. And generally speaking, Kane hasn't missed many in his career. I'm not sure I ever remember him smashing one over the bar. Like, I think I slightly remember, because, like, he really likes to go right in the corner, which is one of the things that makes him such a good penalty taker. I think I remember him steering one or two slightly wide of the post. I don't think I ever remember him blazing one over. And, and, and yeah, whether it was just, like, the pressure of the moment or, or whatever. But, Phil, if I come to you, I mean, he... Southgate made some changes and look, England have got lots of really, really good wide attacking players. Like why the hell wouldn't you use them from the bench? He did Sterling for Saka. Now, I felt that even without my Arsenal glasses on, and I'm not sure I can ever entirely take them off, I felt that I, I understand bringing Sterling on. He's very reliable for England, scored lots of big goals, but I, I felt that like that sub was a mistake. What did you think? Yeah, completely. And obviously we don't know if they're 
if there was an injury involved in that substitution. But I just think you're right. Sterling has a lot of credit in the bank with England and with Southgate in particular. But I don't think he's been performing well this season. I don't think he's performed well in this tournament. And especially after everything that's happened to him um, in the last week or so, I think it was just a bit of a sub that felt unnecessary, in my opinion, because every time Saka was getting on the ball, the only thing France could do was foul him. You know, it was Rabiot, it was Griezmann, it was Hernandez, you know, rotational fouling just to stop him. And we we see it every week. It's it's not a surprise to us. And it, actually, there was a little bit of, you know, validation seeing other people finally seeing what we see, you know. and I saw the, the Spurs reporter for the Standard tweeted, like, Saka's getting a right kicking tonight. And I, I, I couldn't resist. I was just like, mate. <laughs> Keep that one in drafts, I promise you. <laughs> yeah, it's not the first time we've seen it. And I mean, whatever that referee took uh, before the game, I think I'd like a contact because if I sold that in Berlin, I'd be a millionaire. So um, it was, you know, he was an absolute shot. There was one in particular with Rabio who just cleaned him out from the back and he just did that little playoff gesture and I was ready to throw something at the screen. Um and I'm not even that that big on England to be honest, but that was a it was it was a disastrous performance. How he needed, how he needed to check that pen uh, the second penalty on VAR, on VAR, it was the most blatant foul you will ever see. And it, it took him three minutes to get to the decision. It was just like, what is he playing at? Um, but yeah, I mean Rashford, I, I completely understood. I actually think England needed a bit of threat in behind because yep. Foden was coming into the game, but he was. I just think they needed a different profile maybe on the left. And, and we know Kane likes to play with a big, strong, fast inside forward on the left. You know, he's done it with Son before. So that made sense to me. But unless Saka had an injury that we didn't know about, I thought that sub was more premeditated than actually looking at, at the flow of the game and identifying what was working and what wasn't, which is a shame because... You know, I always feel proud when Saka's playing well for England and, you know, he, this was a big stage. He was their man tonight, you know, and it was cut short and obviously the result didn't go in their favour. Yeah, and look, again, looking at it from a very selfish Arsenal perspective, which I'm going to do with you in a second, Lewis, at least this time it wasn't Saka that missed the penalty <laughs> because last summer, like, uh, you know, when England lost, like my wife was trying to console me and I just looked at her and just went, I just didn't want it to be Saka that missed. That's like that's like 90% of my pain here is that it's Saka and at least this time it's Kane. Um, so, you know, I, I, I can feel a bit better about that. Uh, even if in my rational mind, I don't really think missing a penalty makes you like a, a national villain, but, um, you know, Fuck him, basically. <laughs> Lewis, from, from an Arsenal perspective then, Big Big Bill Saliba is the only Arsenal player that's going to go to this tournament to the very end. So Saka and Ramsdale are coming back. They will probably, um, fitness permitting, uh, be playing against West Ham. I mean, look, if, if I put, um, if I try and put like a bit of Brazil context here, like with Martinelli, I think he's the only member of the Brazil squad whose reputation has grown in his own country. I think he's the only one. And it's largely, look, to be honest, if you're in a Brazil squad that doesn't win the World Cup, like as far as Brazilians are concerned, fuck you and the horse you rode in on. No one cares about how good you are. No one cares, like, just fuck all of you. You didn't win it. Go away. But Martinelli wasn't very well known in Brazil before this tournament. And one of my, one of the, the best thing I get Brazilian trends on my Twitter, his name trended during both the Cameroon game and during, um, the Croatia game. Uh, lots of people just like, why, why isn't he, why is he not coming on? Why is he not coming on? So in terms of how the tournament could have gone for him in you know, short of actually winning it, probably pretty good for Martinelli. And he wasn't involved in that quarterfinal, which, brings his stock up a bit more in terms of how I mean Ramsdale probably a non-factor because he didn't play but in terms of how Saka comes back to Arsenal now I mean how do you how do you view that I mean has his reputation inflated is it about the same what 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 do you think generally of his tournament and how he comes back to us I, I think he comes back in really good shape um you know as you said Martinelli 
his stock went up. I think Saka's stock went up. Uh, I think Saka today. By the way, um, I'd probably have down as from what I've seen. I don't watch all England games, but probably his best performance for England. I thought he was on a pitch with Kylian Mbappe and Usman Dembélé and Phil Foden, the most dangerous wide player on the pitch. Uh, you know, consistently at least. I, you know, I think this is very different for old, either older players or players who we saw how you know, those Tommy Yasu quotes after going out, players who maybe play for a team where you don't think you're necessarily going to get another World Cup run. Bukayo Saka and Gabriel Martinelli, I hope and I think, will both be going home knowing they've got a couple of more World Cups in them and they're going to have a really good shot uh, at winning one of them. You know, Martinelli for Brazil, obviously. Next World Cup is the first one in the Americas since '94 which I don't think will be a bad thing for Brazil at all. Mm. And Saka, it's, it's, it's easy to forget how young he is, especially. You know, he's been through much worse as an England player. And he will, you know, for me, this is now the tournament where he cemented himself as a player who has to start every game as well. I think coming into this tournament, Sterling had his spot on merit we've seen this with Southgate a few you know in a few of the positions uh, nobody would pick Harry Maguire based on Harry Maguire's form of the last 12 months but he's not let England down and, yep. and he's not let Gareth Southgate down in these last two tournaments he's been excellent throughout maybe the same for Jordan Pickford I think the the goalkeeper position is always difficult to make a change because you're making such a definitive change there's no chance to win your place back really if if you drop the goalkeeper you can't ever really reinstate that goalkeeper and have him believe that you really believe he's the best goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. It's it's just an issue that all managers have, but I think especially at international level when you know managers don't work with their players every day and they won't see them for three or four months at a time. So I never really saw Aaron Ramsdale getting a chance as soon as he was injured during the last international break. And I think there was a shot if he'd have come in and performed really, really well there and Pickford had had a wobbly few months with Everton, but no chance for him. Saka, you know, Sterling was there on merit in the first few games. Rashford came into the team and by the end of the tournament was more of a factor because he performed well. But I think a lot of people looked at that lineup against Iran and thought, uh, maybe Mason Mount or Phil Foden or Marcus Rashford could be playing in Saka's position he leaves the World Cup with absolutely no doubt that he should be starting every single game for England and he won't be handing number seven shirt over to Jack Grealish, I don't think, by the time the Euros <laughs> comes around in 18 months so that Jack Grealish can come on in the 98th minute when England need a goal. You know, Saka is in the England eleven now and this tournament, not for us Arsenal fans because we've seen him up close all this time, but on a national level and for him personally, I think it's cemented that status as one of the brightest young talents you know anywhere in the world yeah it's funny you say that about the squad number because I hadn't properly absorbed that until Jack Grealish came on I was like he's got number seven. Oh yeah Saka's got number 17 why like you know it doesn't matter but like why the fuck has that happened I don't know but yeah I I I agree with that assessment I, I think this is almost like a bit of a perfect tournament for Saka in that not overloaded games wise he he didn't play one of the group games but Scored some goals, reputation enhanced, fingers crossed not injured or or anything like that. Um, Saliba's the only one that's staying, but I think we're quite well covered for him and he hasn't really played anyway. Um, so that's wonder, kind of all right. By the way, just on that referee performance and Saka just getting kicked about, I wonder if English referees watching that through English eyes back home tonight if that could help us, you know, yeah, yeah. everybody's sitting there at home, Saka's being kicked and we're wondering why there aren't fouls being blown. We're obviously really, really used to that by now. However, English referees watching a Brazilian ref not give fouls to Bukayo Saka, they might look at their own performances a little bit differently when they see all of these replays. And it's not a colleague that's not blowing his whistle, but it's actually against the team that they support. And they think Bukayo Saka didn't go to ground too easily over and over again and should have got a lot of free kicks. And yeah, hopefully, fingers are crossed, 
that could even be a, a positive knock-on effect for us going forward, but I won't hold my breath. Yeah, yeah. I, again, I follow lots of Brazilians on Twitter and Michael Oliver is something of a hate figure um, to them at the moment. I don't think he did anything tremendously wrong against Croatia, to be honest, but he's still a hate figure. And I saw lots of like, oh yeah, English referee knocking Brazil out, is it? <laughs> a lot of them see that as a, yeah, I saw the word uh, vingança, which means revenge uh, on my timeline quite a lot. Um, to, to, to close, I'll give both of you a kind of um, a nibble at this, but Phil, France-Morocco um, is a World Cup semi-final. How do you see it going? I mean, there was, uh, you know, a, a big political background during Spain against Morocco, and now we've got, we've got some added fuel to the fire here with France against Morocco. I mean, who did like France? Said, I think uh, uh, for, who did France play in the group stage that they lost to? That was, it wasn't Tunisia, was it? Tunisia weren't at. Who did France lose their lot? I've I've gone yeah, completely yeah, it was. brain. It was, it was Tunisia. It right? was Tunisia. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Wabi Kazri. That's it. That's mm-hmm. it. So France, France. Yeah, yeah when France they made have like had nine changes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's going to be really interesting. Like look, I think Lewis mentioned earlier, I'm a little bit worried about their legs um, because the way Morocco play is very demanding and intense, both mentally and physically. And we've seen a couple of players drop away. Um, I think Masraoui is going to be out. I think Aged is touch and go. If Saïs is out now as well, that's a big portion of their back four all out. Um, I think Ziyech went down with cramp a couple of times today and Nassiri went down with cramp today. So it's very difficult for them to kind of replicate those levels. Um because I feel just for Morocco to be here, they've had to put a hundred percent into everything. Whereas France have so much quality that they can kind of divide um, responsibility a bit. Like one day it can be Mbappe, another day it can be a header from Varane, another day it can be a, a, a really nice moment from from Giroud. You know, I feel like they've got different avenues of of, of responsibility. Whereas Morocco, it's, it's all for one and one for all, you know, and I, I just fear for them with these games coming in such quick succession. Will they have enough? You know, I, I mean, I've loved the story. Um, and it doesn't, th- yes, they're underdogs, but I don't feel like they're here on, you know, uh, that on anything that's been undeserved. You know, I think they've completely It's not South Korea 2002, is it? Not at all. You know, no no referees putting them through this year. I mean, you know, I, I've, I've felt that their position and their place in the semi-final has been totally deserved. I think the manager, um, Reg, Regraggy, Regraggy, I'm sorry, this name has, you know, it's, it's given me trouble all tournament, but I think he's done an excellent job. Young manager, built relationships he's mended some bridges you know he's really brought a sense of togetherness back into this team and he was only appointed a couple of months before the tournament even started so you know they were calling him the Habibi Pep and I'm I'm all for that nickname so you know look I think they're going to be riding on on adrenaline on on some home support um but yeah I just I don't know to be honest France didn't impress me today I think it was one of their quieter performances in the tournament I, I think they managed the game I don't think they they excelled really at any stage maybe 10 minutes in either half they had some some sustained possession but they've been there they've done it they've got Giroud scoring they've got Mbappe you know who's always going to be a threat and and more importantly I just think they're really solid everywhere else so look we can't count Morocco out we've said it me and Lewis have said it time and time again on this podcast don't rule them out because they can do it um i just wonder is it going to be a, a just one step too far yeah yeah what, what about you lewis is is there any way that morocco are in the world cup final for you I'm just happy that they have made it this far after me and Phil had so many other horrible shouts throughout the <laughs> tournament like one of them Phil one of them's come off yeah we, uh, we've backed them all the way um we take the wins where we can get them Lewis. don't, honestly, don't yeah, remind they, people that we get stuff wrong you know? they, they don't come around all that often and i i thought that they were great today i thought they were great against spain but i'm also yeah i, I think it's probably going to be a step too far against france the one portugal player that i thought was really really underused today was rafael leal who is the player with the most one-on-one ability in the final third 
and for some reason got I don't know, 15, 10, 15 minutes at the end of the game. Uh, he's the he was the one for me that could have unlocked that defense and, and sort of blown that game open. I think you need those players against such a well drilled defense. You need the guy who can attract one, two, three defenders, and then that's how you create the space. And and Liao should have been that today for Portugal and Martinelli. Yeah, yeah, and like for some reason those players, yeah, the Brazil yesterday, the same thing, right? Like like for like subs when what was what was going on wasn't working, uh, and instead of bringing on that direct player that's going to beat people, it's you know Rafinha off and Anthony on. Portugal did get Leao on today, but they took way too long to do it. Uh, he would have started for me today. It's hard after a six-one, obviously, to change something. If you're not going to change it, he would have definitely been the first sub to to be made France fortunately enough have Kylian Mbappe and there's no doubt he's going to start so you know Kyle Walker I do think is the perfect player to play against Mbappe pretty much at right back Ashraf Hakimi has the pace to live with Mbappe he, he, he's also you know used to defending his against teammate, him training yeah. <laughs> every single week uh, but I think his his natural instincts are, are based on stretching his legs and getting further up the pitch and you know, jinking inside, going on those mazy runs. I don't know if he'll have the discipline to to do that Kyle Walker job. And yeah, I don't think Morocco will, will have him sort of tuck in like England did with Walker, but he's going to have to win that one-on-one battle against Mbappe over and over and over again to have any chance. Going the other, I'm sure Morocco will be hoping and thinking going the other way. They've got maybe the best attacking right back in the world, and Kylian Mbappe yeah. will not bother tracking him. So yep. maybe Hakimi can do damage at the other end in, in the way that England didn't really trust Walker to do today. Or, you know, they sort of left that, as Phil said earlier, to, to Saka on the right. And Walker, maybe maybe Hakimi will, will hurt France, will be able to hurt France in a way that Walker didn't try to. They're still going to have to live with Mbappe without the, you know, at least a couple of the back four. I think they'll have a tough time. And it's that different type of striker in Giroud. I thought Giroud tonight was, I didn't think he had his best game, but every time the ball went down into the channels, it nearly reached it. It either did reach him or it nearly reached him. And uh, you know, Phil mentioned maybe Ronaldo today could have been the pick for Portugal if he'd have got longer on the pitch, mm. just that movement in the box. I thought Giroud, there was a there was a, a low header, which I think if it, in, the in the first half, half if, it, if it had yeah. come from the other flank, he'd have volleyed it with his left foot. But because it came from the right, he doesn't trust his right foot enough to hit it on the volley. So he ducked down. There was that. There was uh, one that he, he sort of stepped over and left for Dembélé, but Dembélé didn't read it. There was the save that Pickford made. And, and obviously there was the goal as well. I, I think Giroud's had a really good tournament. I think in the box, he's as dangerous as he's ever been. And Morocco will have that challenge of, of a very big physical striker. You know, Belgium were playing with the, the non-entity that is Michy Batshuayi. And then I think maybe Leandro Trossard came on for him. It was before Lukaku mm. was trusted to play any more than 15 minutes because of his injuries. Croatia don't really have a big number nine, or not an effective one, at least. Then you've got Spain. Well, you know, uh, Alvaro Morata came off the bench, but, but Ferran Torres started up front. And today we, we talked about Gonzalo Ramos sort of seeking that contact with the defenders, but a little bit of inexperience and, and that movement in the box was lacking. So Giroud's, a, you know, I think a level of striker that this brilliant defence hasn't come up against yet. If you've got the second string of Moroccan centre-backs, I think he could have a field day. Uh, mm. I I, I think Morocco will make life hard for France because they've made life hard for everyone. And I think the system's good enough that even missing a few players, you sub in the replacements and they've just got to fit into the system. But that little bit of quality that might be missing because of injuries and the extra quality that France have compared to the, play, the teams that Morocco have knocked out so far, I, I find it very hard to see them pulling it off again and, and keeping another clean sheet. Yeah, one one of the reasons I'm calling a France-Croatia final, <clears throat> the, the phrase I'd just use is muscle memory. Um, I, I just think they've both got those teams know each other inside out and, and actually feel just to finish. I've kind of got a theory that France's injuries have done them a favour in a really, really weird way, um, just because sometimes I think that forces a coach to properly focus. And look, you know, Lewis was just talking about Giroud there. If you're talking quality, like 
Benzema is ahead of Giroud, which is not an insult to Giroud at all, but I I kind of feel like Pogba, Kante, Benzema, brilliant players that they are, I feel a little bit like France have maybe benefited from from losing some players and having to really focus on their strengths. I mean, Deschamps is a structure guy, right? He's all about structure, you know, and if it means playing Matuidi as the left midfielder or, you know, uh, Benjamin Pavard or Jules Koundé at right back, he'll do it, you know, and we're seeing again that with Chouameni and Ravio in midfield, it's not the midfield that he would have probably chosen going into the tournament, but it's working, you know, it's working and it's fine. And they're just strong everywhere. You know, I, I don't see too many weaknesses. Maybe Rabio is not a midfielder that will set the world alight, but he's been fine for Juve this season. He can cover the, cover the grass. Well, he gets involved in both boxes, you know, and ultimately for me with Deschamps, he just likes structure above all and then players who can make a difference you know and he's got plenty of those so I just think it's that I don't know if it, if it's his choice maybe he would have liked to have had Pogba and Kante there but I think he's adapted well and ultimately if you have a strong foundation in tournament football um, you're already on on a way to to achieve something good. Yeah, definitely. And again, that's that's just why I think it'll be a France-Croatia final. Neither of those teams set my heart fluttering, but you know, you're talking about structure and everything like that. I think those are just the two teams that really have it, whereas I think Argentina are, are, Argentina have had it for the last two years, but for some reason they've come into this tournament and just decided to be really chaotic. Um, so yeah, that that that's my call for the final, but we will see. And we have the set for the first sets of semi-finals Tuesday night, is it? Yep, I think Argentina, it is. Croatia, yeah, yeah. Right first on one's Tuesday on Tuesday. Night. Yeah, yeah, Tuesday and Wednesday. So obviously we will be back with our World Cup. Well, it's not really daily anymore now because <laughs> um, the, the games aren't happening daily anymore. And I've, I've kind of gone into this phase where when we were in the November Premier League games, I felt like the World Cup was looming and the Premier League was fading. I've gone into the other like mindset, particularly as more and more Arsenal players have gone home. I'm a bit like, oh, we're playing AC Milan on Tuesday and then we're playing Juventus <laughs> and then we've got West Ham. And like it feels like I, I've got that kind of um, space odyssey, like opening sequence uh, kind of thing in my mind going on. And it's like, you know, the monolith is 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 looming. But obviously for the purposes of this podcast. We'll be back again on Tuesday with another World Cup daily for looking at that first World Cup semi-final between Argentina and Croatia. But until then, Lewis, thank you very much. Thank you. And Phil, thank you very much as well. Thank you. And to take a, a little phrase from Gianni Infantino, today I feel Moroccan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I feel I feel a bit Moroccan. I feel I'm not going to tell my wife. I feel a bit Croatian as well. I like I really like. She she says she'd rather see Argentina win than Croatia now. Like what? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's I that's can't just, believe that. No, that's just how it goes. Like whoever knocks out Brazil, like they've got to go. That's 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 the mentality. It's ruthless. Um, but I, I quite like Croatia. I'd quite like to see Croatia or Morocco win it, um, quite frankly. But we'll see who wins it in eight days' time, um, which feels really, really soon somehow. Um, but nevertheless, we'll come back on Tuesday. Um, it probably won't be me in the presenting chair. I'll probably miss half of that semi-final, putting my daughter to bed. Um, I had leave tonight to be able to watch the England game because... I took the responsibility during the Brazil game last night. But anyway, thanks very much for listening, downloading, etc., etc. Um, we'll be back with a main podcast, I believe, on Monday um, with Elliot, Clive and Paul. I won't be on that. Um, and then we'll be back with another World Cup uh, kind of daily now on Tuesday. Thanks very much. And we will speak to you after your country nil, Morocco slash Croatia 10.
It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.